Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. make it happen so but I told my wife you know I'm going to do something for your birthday but it just might be March 1st or something when that when that happens or sometime next month I always you know do something for her so but usually for Valentine's Day I don't do a lot for Valentine's I usually my plan is for tomorrow I'm going to get those Reese hearts the two-pack and I usually will print out like a little love note for all my kids and my wife and give them each one a little Valentine you know Hey, you know, last year I think I did that. My kids were like so thrilled to get Reese's before school. Yeah, and so they were, yeah, they were they were pumped. So I'm just going to go with what works, you know. And so. You know, um, that reminds me of um, back in 2013, my car broke down. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Yeah, so you carpooled. Yeah. He gave me a ride. He told me I had a ride with him for as long as I did. He did it for 13 months, got me to work back and forth. Wow. Every night, he missed me one night because he almost um, got rode while I did. Sure. He actually almost went into the ditch when he got onto my, my road. But he hurried up and got back onto the main road and got to work, told my boss. He said, um, Cheryl's not here tonight because I can't get to her. <laughs> but the thing was, I don't care how many times I yeah. offered him. There you go, yeah. And do you know, I mean, I, I mean, I offered money all the time. No, no, no. That's great. I said, well, I need to stop by Walmart on the way home. He said, you know what I want. <laughs> That's good. Well, you know, he's being generous, and the Reese is a generosity on your part. I was, uh, I got to go home with my daughter last night, and uh, we we had to take my son to my parents so he could stay with them because I've got a late meeting today, and just logistically it works better. So my oldest daughter and me are riding home by ourselves. My youngest daughter had rode home with my wife. And so we get some daddy-daughter time, and she's the big kid, so we get to talk. And it's, it's interesting, we, came, we were talking about generosity, and um, she asked, Dad, if you had three wishes, you know, what would you do with your three wishes? And I said, well, I, first thing I'll do is make sure everybody on earth had uh, good food and water every single day, access to good food and water. Second thing I'll do is make sure everybody had access to health care, make sure that everybody, you know, if they were sick, they could go to a doctor without having to struggle financially because we just went through this. I mean, $200 is a lot of money, and some families would that have the flu won't go to the doctor because they can't afford it. And so everybody has the health care. And then my third wish, I'd wish for everybody around the world to have access to education and those three things would change the earth so much, I mean, by having food, health care, and education. And she said, well, Dad, you know, I don't want you to wish for something like that. I want you to wish for something selfish, you know, something that you want. And I said, well, okay, if I could wish for something selfish, I would want my family to be healthy and long-lived, all my family to be healthy and to live a long time. I said, Dad, that's still not selfish because that's for somebody else. <laughs> and I was like, well... I said, well, that's, that's, that's what I selfishly want for me is for my family to, to live, live, you know, live a long time and have, be healthy. She couldn't, she couldn't get it. And I, said, and I was trying to teach her. She said, she said, she started naming things she would wish for. She said, well, I want some AirPods, you know, the Apple AirPods. 
well, that's a terrible wish. You know, like, think about what you could do with these wishes. You know, they, you wish for the AirPods? Come on. And so um, we're going back and forth talking about what, it's, what it is to be selfish. And I read a quote this week, actually, that said that man is born selfish and uh, we should do what we can to teach man to be generous, you know. And I believe in being generous. Um, and even me, like, there's more I could do to give. Uh, and what people really value is not the things that you give them, the Reese cups is the time that you spend with them and the effort that you give them. You know, I read another quote that says, um, your kids don't want things from you. They want your time. They don't care about, they, they may say they want the, the stuff, but what they really want is a parent that loves them and takes care of them and spends time with them. So, right. The time is extremely valuable. Yeah. Right. I uh, read another quote, something along the lines of trillions of dollars have been created over the, the course of history. Not one dollar has been able to buy an extra second of time. That's Time is so extremely valuable. Your time is valuable. Um, but good stuff. Good. I'm glad. That, but this leads me to another conversation very briefly. <coughs> I read an article within the past year that says if you want to be wealthy, drive a crappy car. I drive used cars myself. And when you said your car broke down, well, I worked in the car business for three years. And... I saw a lot of different examples of some people were looking for the very most economic car they could get for the money. Other people were looking for the most they could possibly squeeze out of their approval and their payment. You know, like I want to get the most I can possibly get. I'd have people come in to trade a car and they'd be upside down $4,000 in equity. What that means is they owe like $18,000 on a car that's worth 14,000. And so if they trade that car, that $4,000 doesn't go away. It gets rolled into the next loan. And so if you buy a car, the next car is 20000 you know, but, you know, you finance twenty, you automatically put that, that 4000 on top of it and you drive it for a few months, well, you might be six or $8,000 upside down on that car. And I run into people all the time that are in that scenario. And I was thinking, <coughs> I have a friend whose car payment is $750 a month. And I was thinking, seven fifty a month, that's a mortgage. And I hadn't said this to her, but I was thinking if you took that same 750 and just invested it for 20 or 30 years, you'd have hundreds of thousands, if not a million plus dollars. And so, but it's where you it's where you value things. I mean, some people value the vehicles, you know, other people value the, the, the assets. I'll drive a really used car and get right. from point A to point B. Right. I don't worry about scratches, dings, and yeah. stuff like that. My van's a 2004 model, so it's 16 years old now, you know. Approaching 200,000 miles, you know. But, you know, I mean, I've had to put a little bit of money into it here and there. Hopefully not much more, you know. But uh, really, vehicles, if you buy a brand-new car, it does lose its, uh, its appeal after about six months. You're thinking, you know, it's nice when I first get it, but then after six months you're still left with that car payment, and it's hitting you every month, you know, that three, four, five hundred $500 a month. My sister, she did this. She went out and got a car payment. <coughs> I think her payment's like 350 a month plus another about 150 in insurance on top of so $500 she's committing to this car payment. I'm like, you know, you could do a car payment for probably less than half that and still get from point A to point B and have a decent car. I mean, you know, who cares? I mean, it doesn't matter what you drive. I mean, so uh, Sam Walton, one of the richest people of our time, he drove an old beat-up red truck, you know, and that's, that was just his – he didn't care about buying fancy things, you know. So, but don't get me wrong, nice cars, new cars are nice, but they do cost you in so many ways because you're giving up the opportunity cost of not investing in the future. And believe me when I say it, you'd rather be somewhat wealthy in retirement than broke because I've 
see so many people now that are facing retirement with zero savings, zero assets, or very few assets. And it's like, God forbid, there's a major medical something happen because you're going to be completely impoverished, you know. And so part of the things I talk about, uh, I have a lecture series on uh, personal finance. It is available in the podcast. Um, I may or may not have a chance to talk about it in here. But that being said, that's the kind of stuff we talk about it and why we do talk about it is to help you prepare for the future. That being said, I'm going to go ahead and jump into Chapter 4 and wrap up Chapter 4. And we probably will kind of crack the seal open on Chapter 5. Um, chapter five, 4, we've almost got through the whole thing. And I'm just going to kind of quickly <coughs> recap to get us to where we were. We did talk about internal and external organizations. Spent a lot of time on Tuesday talking about how these different external forces are present uh, within every organization or they are a factor within every organization. You can't exist in a vacuum where you just ignore what's going on around you. If you open up a business and everything is just falling apart all around you, I mean, that's going to affect your business. You know, the economy uh, and the world around you affects your business. If we, if you decide I'm going to open up a business, you know, one mile from the base, I've got all these troops here, it's going to be a real big boon, you know, and then there's a deployment and there's a massive pullout of, of military from this area, your business is going to take a hit from that, you know. I mean, so uh, that needs to be a environmental or a uh, consideration, external consideration. <laughs> um, not going to spend too much time on this, but in generally, there's these economic, technological, sociocultural, natural disaster and human-induced problems, and government and political forces at play. Also talked about different types of complexity. <coughs> and it's important to understand how complex your environment is and the factors at play. If you're in a really simple environment and are simple and stable, meaning that uncertainty is low, meaning that you have a relatively high degree of certainty how tomorrow, this week, this month, this year is going to play out because things are very comfortable and certain. If you're in a highly complex, unstable environment, your certainty is low or you have a highly uncertain environment. That being said, we use the example of Goldsboro, North Carolina versus New York City, New York. And both environments, you know, one is kind of a simple environment. The other one is very complicated. Um, where you would have to really spend some time researching who all your competitors are. If you're going to open a burger joint in uh, Goldsboro, you probably pretty easily count the burger joints in Goldsboro who sells burgers, where they're located, and actually sit down with a map, kind of draw it out and figure out traffic patterns, how many people go down a road uh, during a certain uh, day or how many people go down a road in a month. And you can kind of get some really good data. Probably within a week or so, you can have a good understanding of an environment. But somewhere like New York City, it's going to take you quite a bit of time to do that same analysis. Um, so we also talked about organizational designs and structure mechanistic versus organic. Remember what we said about mechanistic, a little more traditional, more hierarchical in nature. Organic is kind of a flat organization where uh, the manager, you might have a central manager and then everybody kind of reports to that person and there's a lot of horizontal communication. Um, we showed you this graphic <coughs> and this just kind of shows the evolution of organizational structures over time where we went from functional divisional all the way up to virtual and 
we live in a very virtual world. Um, has anyone seen that movie, Ready Player One? Ready Player One, pretty cool movie, right? Yeah, did you like it? What do you think? Pretty cool movie? Yeah, 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 very cool. In that movie, the characters, this is about 40 or 50 years in the future. It's not, not too far from now. Uh, but the characters in the movie, they go in their living room, and then they put on a VR headset, and they are transported into this virtual space, and they interact, talk, socialize, even work inside this virtual space. And people go to jobs inside, basically inside the Internet or inside this virtual space. And so you go inside and you're actually doing tasks that an employer needs you to do inside the virtual space. Which So really, that's, that's where we're getting to. So um, I can see a day where the cell phone kind of goes away and we'll all be wearing some type of apparatus that will be some type of augmented reality interaction where if you want to search something, a little screen will appear right here and you can be searching and doing things uh, without having to actual hold a device. Uh, that kind of technology is coming very quickly. And so the idea of a virtual structure, um, there's going to be some of you in this room that will work completely virtual jobs at some point in your life where you just sign into an online account and do work and stay at home. That's, I mean, that's, uh, that's going to be a normal thing. And uh, there's a lot of benefits to that if you... If you don't like having to get up, get out, and, and go to work. Um, I do know people that have completely home-based businesses or home-based jobs, and they tell me that even though they work from home, they still try to get up and follow a traditional going-to-work routine. You probably do this. Get up, you know, get dressed, act like you're going to work, and be in that work mentality. Because so, if you just roll out of bed in your pajamas and you don't, you're, you're not in the right frame of mind to be a professional if you don't get up and take a shower or get dressed and, and move on. So, But, yeah, virtual structure, that's going to be a very common thing. Um, this is a, just a look again at what a functional structure looks like. Uh, and then divisional structure, this is getting close to where we left off. Each, uh, each type of product has its own. Uh, selection of research and development, manufacturing, accounting, marketing, and customer service. And then the, I think this is where we left off, this really complicated <laughs> network team structure. And the example I talked about, or the reason why this is bad, is because it takes too long to explain it and understand it. And even if you've got 20 really bright people in the room, they're all going to take something different from it. It needs to be something that you can clearly articulate to everybody in the room, they all get it. And the example I showed is how much money it costs just to own this graphic. If you're a company, if you've got 300 people, they're all having to take 10 minutes to understand it, that's a thousand bucks that you've just spent. And not to mention how long it took the person to develop it. And so, um, yeah, just avoid complexity like that. Um, here we go. This is the last one before you like, move on. So, this is uh, the last slide we looked at on Tuesday. It talked about virtual structures, and you can have people in different locales performing different functions of uh, what's needed. Um, I've actually procured services. I, I needed like a cover design done for a book project, and I talked to a girl in Germany, and she does, uh, that's what she does. That's her full-time stay-at-home virtual gig, and so she's a graphic designer. She does really good work, and she charges somewhere between two to $500 per project, depending on how much time she's got to put into it. But 500 bucks a week for one project, that's a good income, you know? And so if she does two or three projects a week, if she can, can get consistent business, I mean, that's a good living. 
the downside is she doesn't have any benefits with that. I mean, if you're your own entrepreneur with your own home-based business, that can be a challenge. But the upside is that you don't have to go work for a boss, per se, or an organization. You don't have to report anywhere. You're just doing your own thing. So there is some opportunities there for people that have those special skill sets. Um, but it, within this, you can see you've got the, the technical development, the design, delivery and service, sales and marketing, all geographically spread out, but they're all able to work together on a project in order to bring that book project to life or whatever publication they're working on. All right, so this is a, some new content to bring up. If I can, um, hang on. I don't like this little box. There we go. All right, <laughs> so open system model of uh, an organization. Um, we probably talked about this in chapter one or chapter two, but the whole reason why business exists besides to make money is to provide goods and services. That's what they do in order to make money. And so we actually take this process of transforming inputs into outputs. And between that, uh, just to define real quick, the inputs are those resources, raw materials, technologies. Technology is a broad term. It just doesn't just mean calculators and cell phones. Technology is, a, is any tool that we use to uh, transform something. Um, ideas, people, students, etc., are taken from the environment. Those outputs are results from the throughputs, phase products, uh, produced products, services, trained, cert uh, certified degrees, professionals, etc. Um, so those throughputs are, these are what's within the organization where the magic happens. This is where the transformation occurs. Organizational subsystems and processes transform the inputs through education, manufacturing processes, etc. So when we take those inputs, we have to process them internally into some type of output. That's what the throughput is. It's our process of taking raw materials, whatever they may be, and actually creating a product or service. And so that's the process by which we go through. And if we do a good job, if we produce outputs that the consumers want, um, we're able to realize sales, we're able to realize profits openly, and to maintain our business. And so some other things, the, um, we've talked about these external factors, technological, sociocultural forces, political, legal forces, and economic forces. Um, but let's talk about the internal environment a little bit. Because not only do you have to manage all the chaos going on around you, we have to manage what's going on internally. So there's some formal and informal subsystems. These formal systems include the leadership, strategy, management, goals, marketing, operations, technology, structure, and there's, there's more. There's a long, longer list, but <coughs> this is what, on the surface, we have designated we're doing. This is the formal process. The informal subsystems are things like individual managers, culture, norms, relationships, politics, leadership. This is more of cultural, the informal system that is kind of a uh, side effect of operating a formal business. These are things that manifest. They may not be written on paper, but they exist otherwise, you know. Like, I'm trying to think. So we have a norm here, like, every once in a while, the ice chest in the freezer, in the, in the break room, will get to a point where it's just full, and somebody will dump it. That's a norm that we've created here. It's not written in any manual. You know, it's not a process or procedure, but somebody will take that big full ice chest and just dump it because there's too much ice in there and it's filling up and it's filling out. That's a norm that we've all done. 
Another norm is cleaning up after yourself in there. It's not necessarily written down that, you know, if you make a mess, clean it up, but we all know that we're not going to leave messes behind. So these are, these, what's that? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, point being is that these are unspoken norms that develop, and we just all know these are truths. We never even really talk about it. You know, I've never even heard anybody dump the ice tray, but every once in a while I walk in there and in the sink there'll be a big pile of ice where somebody's dumped the ice tray because it's so full. These, these types of norms um, just pop up all over the place, and uh, they just manifest without there being formal rules or, or speaking about it. And those are really silly, kind of simple concepts, but those types of same norms develop all over the place and um, all different types of organizations, you know. So questions about any of that, or do you have a norm that's an example of something that just kind of manifests in your organization that, like, where do you work? Okay, that's a very, it's a small, small business. What's kind of a norm that nobody really talks about, but it's just, this is the way it is. Like, is there a certain place that y'all park, or is it a designated parking? Mm -hmm. This is where you have to park, okay. Yeah. Um, what about dress codes? Like, no, but it's, I mean, if you work up front, obviously, like, but, but is there a formal dress code, really? Not, not really? Not only if you work, like, in the office. Like, I got you. But, like, but so, but, yeah, but that's the norm, right? So, like, when my wife got to her current job, um, I don't think it was really spelled out. It was, like, you know, office casual. But um, she looked at what other people were wearing, and she kind of adapted to that norm, right? Uh, anything else you can think of? Um, no. Not okay. Anybody else have anything? Yes, ma'am. I can think of reading the article being a sales that, um, <coughs> Excuse me. Sure. You know, they kind of like dress down casual, but right. they still look nice. So that was the way that was going um, I'm not saying this is 100% true. It's, it's, it's definitely not. But it's almost like business today, wearing a really stiff suit is almost not preferred. Like, like from, from a public perception. Like, if I go to talk to somebody, if somebody's wearing a really sharp, expensive suit, I'm intimidated by somebody like that. And it almost makes them unapproachable, you know. And you want to be approachable. You want people to be able to talk to you. You want to be a regular person. And so, like... I think if you're wearing these really, like, tailored, nice suits, nothing wrong with that, and that's appropriate. If you work at a Wall Street bank or something, you know, that's fine. But for most people in business, you won't, like, if you work at a small-town bank, I, I think that that look is just not appropriate because it's going to be almost like you're elitist or unapproachable, you know. Uh, I think it's much more appropriate to wear, maybe not even wear a tie, just wear a collar shirt, maybe a blazer, and that's probably as high as I would go with it, you know. I'm not a tie person, though. I mean, some people want to wear a tie all the time, you know. I get it. But I think the tie culture is slowly but surely dying, you know, I think, you know, for, for guys. Right, right. Yeah. Um, like over 90% of language or communication is, is body language. And when you, when you dress, like, really sharp, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I think you send off the message of elitism, 
And I think that could be like you're saying I'm better than you, like even though like you may not intend to send that signal. And so like I think you should dress like right in line with, with, with whatever audience that you're with, you know. Maybe like the, the, the things that I get from business is you want to dress like a, just a shade nicer, just a shade nicer than everybody else, but not so much like, like if I want to hear with a tuxedo on or something, I mean, you know, or even if I want to hear with a suit on every day, like matching suit, it would be way out of whack with my colleagues, you know. My colleagues are pretty business casual, you know. Uh, and so uh, I just, you know, there's a lot of different schools of thought on this. Some people say it's you always want to dress the best, no question about it. I mean, so, I, I mean, and the truth of it is there is no 100% right answer. It's all situational. It's all who you're around and what the, the audience demands at the time, you know. I do, like, I ran into a guy one time that was, that was doing a speech, and he was wearing, like, uh, a designer belt, like it was Louis Vuitton. He had a big LV on the designer belt. And it was like I was sitting waist level with the guy, and he's up there, and it's really obvious he's wearing a designer belt because it's a big LV up there on the belt. And I'm thinking I was distracted by that, you know. I don't remember the guy's name, but I remember he's wearing an LV belt. And I'm thinking, what message does that send to the audience, like, that he's wearing this designer belt? He may like it, and that's fine. But is he trying to make a statement that, I, hey, look at me, I'm wearing a Louis Vuitton belt? You know, oh, look at me, I'm wearing a Walmart belt. So what? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know. Like, is, is he trying to send that message, or does, does he put any thought into it? Uh, because there were people that were looking at that big belt buckle and losing the message, you know, or whatever he was saying. So, I don't know. It was a distraction. And so, I don't know. I, there's, there's, it could be argued in a number of different ways. There's probably people in the room that thought it was awesome. You know, check this guy out. He's wearing a Louis Vuitton belt. He must be important. He must have something awesome to say. So, I don't know. You know, there's, there's so many different schools of thought on this. And I think uh, the older you are, the more you tend to want the, 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 the message is dressed really sharp all the time. And I think the younger you are, um, it becomes more casual, you know. That's what that's the trend I'm seeing, you know, because millennials want a business casual environment where, you know, th things are kind of free floating, um, where work schedules are kind of uh, flexible, you know. Don't want that flexibility. So, I don't know. So, but I guess final note is that it could be argued either way. So, uh, getting down to the last few slides here. This is the McKinsey 7S model. And it just talks about these seven factors within uh, an organization, structure, systems, style, staff, skills, strategy, and these all contribute to shared values. And you won't, like, I've, I've heard this said to me many times, and I've, I've read it, seen it. When people do hiring, they're looking for this idea of the right fit. You've heard this uh, expression, the right tool for the job. Have you heard that before? Same thing with people. People are tools. I don't mean that in a bad way, but they're a part of a bigger machine. You know, when you go into work, you fulfill a functional role within an organization, and the the value, the talent that you bring, is fulfilling that role. And so that is a skill that you're adding to a group of shared values. They want to make sure that you're the right fit, though, because it's not just the skills you bring; it's the personality you have. It's your your own personal value system. Are you punctual? Are you ethical? 
Um, are you going to be a good fit here? Are you going to cause a hostile work environment? You know, these types of things matter. And so they're looking as to, we've got 15, 20, 300 people, whatever, that work here. Are you going to, if we invite you in to be a part of this culture that we have here, are you going to be a value adder or somebody that takes away from what we have? Because it really does take one, just only one person to create a lot of problems. Have you experienced this in the workplace where you have just that one person that, it's like everybody knows it too. It's like, God, if we could, if we if just Bobby would just go somewhere else and work, things would be so much better. And so um, you, you have to be careful who you bring in. Um, I'm going to do an interview with um, Mr. Ralph Legrand this month, and my business law class is actually going to meet there. And I'm going to give you guys the option to come to that instead of one of our Tuesday, Thursday meetings. Um, and I'll talk more about that next week. But in any case, Ralph has a system where everybody's hired on a 90-day trial period, and at the end of 90 days, they evaluate, is this a good fit or not? And there's no hard feelings either way. If, you don't, if, if Ralph says, it's not a good fit for my organization, then it's, you're, you're out, it's no hard feelings. And if the person says, you know, this is not what I expected, it's not a good fit for me, then they're out, and they walk their separate ways. And that's, I mean, that's actually a healthy thing because Getting into involved in a business or in a job is like a relationship. It's a commitment. It's a long. It's a lot of work, <coughs> and there's a lot of time that you spend at, on the job. And so, giving somebody an out <coughs> in the early days before you've developed this this complicated relationship, um, that probably is a good thing. And I like that. And we're going to talk some more about that. Questions about McKenzie S or Seven S. All right. So the internal organization and the external environment, this is kind of tying everything together. And you see it gets really complicated when you start having to think about internal, external, and how it filters through the organization. So all the weight of the world, both internally and externally, lies on the leadership, the president, the officers of the organization. And so like, it's easy to give these guys and gals a hard time because they make all the money, you know, like, you got a president organization that's making, or a CEO that's making a million dollars a year, or two million, ten million, whatever. But the organization literally rises and falls with the direction they set forth and through their analysis of the internal and external environment. They have to be cognizant of all these external pressures and know how to manage those, but also be aware of what's going on internally and are we making the right decisions? Should we pursue this product line or not? You know, should we start something new? Uh, how is it best that we spend our resources? All these things are really difficult decisions and there's a ton of uncertainty. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And so if I invest you know, $80 million of resources into something and it turns out that the consumers don't want it, don't like it, don't need it, then that's, that's, a, that's a, a loss and I could lose my job over something like that. So there's a ton of pressure on these CEOs. They may act like cool cats, but beneath the surface, you know, you've seen that expression about the ducks, they all look smooth on the surface, but underneath they're panic paddling. That's what CEOs are doing. They're like sleeping three or four hours a night, freaking out. They're constantly insecure thinking, am I making the right decision for my organization? Is a decision that I make going to go bad? And if it does, are they going to fire me? All, these, all this insecurity exists. And I used to think that leaders and CEOs were always cool cucumbers. They just walk out and they make millions of dollars. They're, all, they're doing well. But the more I've read and learned, Almost all of them are insecure. They all, say, they all question, am I doing what's right? Am I making the right decisions? And it goes all the way up to the highest levels of the military, 
and to business organizations. Uh, they all have this um, complex that I'm not sure if what I'm doing is, is correct or not. And because I lead a big organization, my choices have consequences. You know, if you're a big military leader and you make a decision, people's lives are at stake, you know. And so these are, these are very much uh, serious things to consider. So this is why they are so well compensated to make those tough choices. But as we see in the leadership, they go through the process of understanding the external environment. They do that through a SWOT analysis. We, have we talked about SWOT in here a little bit? We're going to talk about it some more, and that's a great thing to learn about. But um, they also have to understand the leadership skills, exp expertise, and performance history from the internal. They process this, and this helps them define what the mission vision and values of the organization, the strategy. And then they develop the operational goals, strategies, and understand what their competitive advantage is. All this filters down to the lower level management. They um, define what type of structural type the organization is going to have, its effectiveness versus efficiencies, information and control systems, production, human resource policies, organizational culture, and alliances. And then we get to this uh, last part of the, the process, effectiveness outcomes. How do we do? What was our financial and economic performance like? What was our social, political, and ethical performance like? What could we do better? How could we do better? And so these are the, this is the constant process that leaders go through. So leadership is a complicated thing. Being a manager is tough. You've got to make tough decisions. And then uh, lastly, we get to this um, competing values framework from Cameron and Quinn. And this talks about um, internal versus external focus. Um, and there's just these four different types, clan, um, adhocracy, hierarchy, and markets. And stability and control, you can see across the bottom. And so there's this constant struggle between you don't want to be too clan-like or too organization-like because if you do, then you kind of exist inside a bubble. But you also don't want to be too focused on everything that's going on outside because if you do, then you lose what it means to be your internal organization. So it's a constant balance act between these things. All right, any questions on chapter four? I, go ahead, please. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right. I tell you, like, um, and it's, it's different for different people, but anytime I go somewhere and have to translate what the sale is, like, if this item is $19.99, and if you look down the list, now it's, you know, $14.47 or whatever, it's, it's like, yeah, I don't like that. Um, I think J.C. Penney's has gone back to doing a lot of coupons. Yeah, because, well, I'm not a J.C. Penney shopper, but... Over, like at some point in my life, I had to take a kid to the bathroom in JCPenney. And while I was waiting for the kid in the bathroom, I was in their towel department. And I saw all these really nice towels. 
and I put in my mental note that I think my wife would like some of these. So over the holidays, I went and bought three or four towels uh, there, and they and I signed up for their service. I got like 20% off. Then I got another coupon for 20%. I thought, you know, this is a good. I only paid like five bucks a towel. They're really nice, Liz Claiborne towels. So the coupon thing is a good thing, I think, and they should stick with that. So um, some companies, they they only like that is their business model is coupons, like Bath and Body Works constantly doing the coupon thing you know constantly putting that out they've got to make just so much money doing that uh they're selling that sauce though i'll tell you <coughs> um so i'm gonna go ahead and just crack the seal on chapter five it's not due till next week i did put it due wednesday but we'll talk about it on tuesday to see where we're at it was on the notes i sent out yesterday but um, i'm not firm firm on that wednesday due date because i know we're still just catching up but my goal is to by the end of next week hopefully be back exactly on track where we were before I was out with my illness. So, um, but like I said, we're just going to see what happens. We've only got about 10 minutes anyway, but I do want to bless you. Just start talking about ethics, corporate social responsibility, and sustainability a little bit. Um, these three words, what does ethics mean? What are ethics? What does that mean? Morals. Morals, okay. Right and wrong, right? What is corporate responsibility? I like that. So there's been some language to come out in the past five years, and you might have heard it. It says that corporations are people. Have you heard this language? From a from a legal standpoint, corporations are a legal person, personhood. And uh, because corporations are people, they are treated as persons with regards to political donations. It's, I don't want to get into all that, but... Um, but if you are a person in the community, you have a responsibility to not just take, to also give to that community. And so corporations have responsibility to not, not do harm to the community. You know, if we're, if we're there for producing a product or service, we don't want to throw toxic waste in the ditch, you know, where the kids play and stuff. Sustainability, what is that? Fair power to last. Power to last, right. Yep, so sustainable means that we take resources, but we also are, are developed a system for replenishment. And so if we cut down a tree, we plant a tree. Mm. You know, that type of thing. That's sustainability, right? So we don't, we don't just want to take, we want to replenish. And um, other resources are infinite, like solar. You know, there's, they're there constantly being replenished. So. Um, the guiding questions for this chapter, what are ethics and business ethics? What are types of values and motive that motivate ethics at the individual level? What are major ethical principles that can guide individuals and organizations? Why is ethical leadership important in organizations? What are the differences between value-based ethics and compliance in organizations? What purpose can CSR, which is corporate social responsibility, offer to organizations and society? What ethical issues do organizations and individuals encounter in the global environments? And what future near-term forecasts will affect ethical and corporate conduct of organizations? So a lot of things to talk about, but that's okay. Um, ethics essentially involves how we act, live, lead our lives, and treat others. Our choices and decision-making processes and our moral principles and values that govern our behavior regarding what is right and wrong are also part of ethics. Normative ethics refer to the field of ethics concerned with our asking how should and ought we live and act. 
business ethics is applied ethics that focus on real-world situations and the the context and environments in which transactions occur. How should we apply our values to the way we conduct business? So a lot of things to unpack in that few little things. But I really like that opening statement about how we act, live, lead our lives, and treat others. That's what, you know, this idea of ethics is. Is or are ethics black and white? Meaning there's obviously a right and obviously a wrong. You say no, why do you say no? Because people are different. People are different. People think and act different. Right. Are there universal ethics that exist across all of humanity? Like what? That's exactly right. Yeah. So we all know, no matter where we go on earth, humans know you shouldn't hurt somebody. That's like a, that's like a inborn thing. Even kids know this, right? If my baby boy slaps his sister, he knows that's wrong. You know, he might do it, but he knew it's wrong to do that. You know, he knows it's wrong to hurt somebody. If he hits her and she starts crying, he immediately, that's instant feedback. He knows he's done something to hurt somebody. And you can see he feels bad about it, you know. At least that's the hope. I hope he's not crazy, you know, so, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, and we don't have to hold each other as human beings accountable to refine our ethics because, you know, it's tempting to do things sometimes that are unethical, but we know there's these societal pressures to know I shouldn't do this because it's wrong and other people will view this as wrong, and even though I might be tempted to do it, as an individual, I know society frowns upon this type of behavior, and so therefore, I'm not going to do it. Um, yeah, so lie, cheat, steal, kill, those are universal ethics. <laughs> the framework for classifying levels of ethical analysis. So the ethics of an individual is kind of this base level. How do we exist as an ethical person? The ethics of organizations or systems, communities, you know, you ever watch those horror movies where everybody in the community is in on the horror? It's like, oh my God, even you're like a villain too, you know? That's because an uh, individual in that community you, you think is the bad person, and then you find out, no, it's not just them, it's the whole community's in on it. They're all doing unethical stuff. But uh, then we get to the ethics of a system, thinking, you know, countries, bigger systems, uh, and they go from descriptive, normative, and analytical. Uh, descriptive meaning different societies have different moral standards. Normative, the action is wrong in this society but right in another. And analytic, morality is relative depending on where you are. <coughs> What's something that we may think is ethical or unethical but other places in the world might view it differently? <coughs> what do you think? Okay. Okay. One child policy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we well that we would probably view that as an infringement on liberty, and so yeah, I don't know. Ethics is kind of iffy, but we definitely would view that as a infringement on our liberties. And so, um, what else do you think? Off top of your head, real quick, something that might be acceptable somewhere else. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know. Um, I know some countries around the world allow for young women to get married, like 14, 15 years old, places like India, you know. And so we view, you know, like if, if you have a, 
an agreement between two families where the, the child is promised to marry this person who might be, you know, five or ten years older, but when they're 25 and she's 15, she's been promised to marry this person, and so they get married. That is their tradition. That is their ethical framework. In our country, that would be very scary and weird, and, and, and we would consider that unethical, right? Yeah. So, but if you go over there, it's a perfectly normal thing, you know, to see that. But even me, if I'm over there in that country watching this go down, I'm thinking, what the hell am I looking at? You know, what is going on? You know, it's kind of weird, you know. Uh, or countries that eat animals that we don't eat. Like some countries eat horses, as an example. But the thought of Mr. Ed, you know, getting, getting chopped up in steaks, we'd have problems with that, you know. Like if I served you a horse steak today and it could taste just like a cow steak, but you would look at me and think, what, what's going on? You know, what are you doing? You know, so there's a lot of examples of this. We'll talk some more about it on Tuesday. Guys, I appreciate your time and attention. Happy Valentine's Day. Just worry about Chapter 4. We'll pick up with Chapter 5 on Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you liked it, please subscribe, like, and share. If you're feeling extra generous, please consider leaving an iTunes review. My name is Ryan Bradshaw, and I produce this podcast to help students connect with the material, but also to be able to share the content with the world. My hope is through education, we can make the world a kinder, happier, and better place. Thank you for joining me, and I look forward to our time together in the future. Until then, I wish you well.